Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is December the 23rd, 2021. I'm talking to you, as always, from San Francisco. Um, earlier today, I did an interesting show with the Washington, D.C.-based scholar and thinker on foreign, American foreign policy, Michael Kimmage. He has an interesting new book out, The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, which is really about American self-representation in the world. And of course, uh, the idea of the West, particularly in the mind of the United States and of U.S. Um, statesmen, has always been bound up with the ideal or the idea of democracy. Joe Biden is very much um, of this um, of this thought when it comes to democracy, very much relocating America and the idea of America in the world in terms of democracy. So uh, earlier this month, he held a summit for democracy. And of course, the debate about democracy often goes back to the Greeks. We've done a number of shows on Greece. So one scholar I had recently on the show was a very distinguished um, scholar, a historian of antiquity, Paul Cartledge, um, who, who came on the show. Uh, Paul is the author of a really interesting book, Democracy, A Life, which um, uh, presents democracy in terms of a narrative from ancient Greece to today. Uh, I was intrigued with a, a review of uh, Cartledge's book on democracy um, uh, in the Los Angeles Review of Books with uh, the headline, The United States is Not a Democracy. It was an interesting review and a very popular review uh, by Rosalind Fuller. Rosalind is also the author of her own book on democracy in defense of democracy. Uh, which is quite a controversial take on the perhaps absence of democracy in America. Um, I'm thrilled that Roslyn is joining us from Dublin, Ireland. Uh, Roslyn, welcome. Uh, let's go back to your review of the Cartledge book. Do you believe that America is a democracy or not? No, not certainly not in the original sense of being a people power state with institutions that allowed people to rule themselves directly, as it was in ancient Athens, and as Paul Cartledge was talking about in his book. I think a lot of issues in the United States today stem from the past, uh, the fact that the United States is a republic. Um, it was designed to be a republic. You'll also often hear conservatives or re Republican Party members saying that the United States is a republic, which is entirely true. It has Republican institutions, power-sharing institutions. But these governmental institutions are quite different from democratic ones. And the United States has moved from having a perception of itself as a republic to having a perception of itself as a democracy. And because its institutions don't match up to make that transition, from a power sharing arrangement to a kind of people power or people rule arrangement. Um, I think that's what's causing a lot of the tensions in the United States today, actually. Well, we'll come back to a discussion on American democracy. Your book in defense of democracy um, is indeed a full-throated defense. Do you idealize Greece? Was Greece the, the crucible of, 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 of democratic um, ideas, of institutions? Is that where we should look? 
in terms of a model for, demo- for, for, for a pure kind of democracy? I don't know if it's really a matter of purity. Um, the reason Greece is so interesting to people who study democracy and how I got reading like books by Paul Cartledge and other historians um, is that it had quite complicated institutions. Um, and those institutions could be applied to a society today, unlike a lot of other civilizations that also were pretty democratic, but didn't necessarily have a whole bunch of interlocking parts that you would need to maybe govern a very large society. Um, That being said, you do raise a very interesting and important point, which is that we shouldn't idealize Greek democracy. It was still a society with a lot of problems. Um, I always tell people this just because you would have a democracy or a situation where, let's just say, people would rule more naturally or popular rule would would be more natural, um, it wouldn't get rid of all of your problems. And it certainly didn't get rid of all of the problems in ancient Greece or in Athens either. Um, in addition to that, uh, democracy wasn't really a safe, like a safe space in Greece. It was a very kind of like full contact on and quite full-throated argument all of the time. The image we have, which is of these very calm and collected people philosophizing and reasoning in this very, very structured manner, was not the reality of Greek democracy. So I think people need to be really aware of that as well. Uh, Rosin, we also had um, earlier this year the New York University scholar David Stasavage on the show. I'm sure you're familiar with his book on democracy. And his argument and the the politics of democracy are are, are, are complicated. His argument is rather than looking back to antiquity, um, we should be looking to the indigenous peoples, particularly in pre-colonial America. What do you make of that? Do we have much to learn from pre-colonial peoples, indigenous peoples, when it comes to the management of democratic um, organizations and and architecture? Uh, Yesterday, we did a show on the Strait of Bering and on the Beringia, on the the tribes of of this uh, uh, Beringia, which is the... the, the, um, the territory between um, Russia and America. And my guest on the show also suggested that we have much to learn in terms of democratic infrastructure. What's your thoughts on um, on, on, on the indigenous people's contribution uh, to democracy? Yeah, I, I don't think David Stasavage's point was quite that we shouldn't we shouldn't look at Greece. It's just that we should also look at other civilizations. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I, I misrepresented him. I think that's a fair point. Yeah, like the, the classics are something that have people have mined for a really, really long time, especially um, in England and to some extent America. And of course, there are other cultures that have also really interesting things to say about democracy, but haven't been necessarily always as well researched and as well documented um, and therefore have gotten less attention. But I think hopefully now we're at a place where people are having more interest in those cultures and looking at what we could learn from them in terms of democracy or how to govern politics as well. Um, this is all interesting. Um, the kind of like basis of democracy always comes back to how much do people rule and how much power do people have in that society and how many barriers are there. But there's more than one way to skin a cat. So it's always interesting to see and compare what other civilizations have done. And in a certain sense, you could argue that democracy is kind of in some respects the oldest form of government and that it's the 
kind of egalitarian government that you tend to get before civilizations get very, very complicated. And what you see in history is that as civilizations get complicated, they tend to get more centralized and the people at the center tend to project power more. And then we kind of have this cycle where we come back to being more democratic and it kind of tends to go around and around in a circle like that. So yeah, I actually really look forward to how much we're going to learn in the next decades from civilizations that have been, you know, under-researched and also, you know, the results of that research haven't been as widespread as they should be. We've also had, Rosalind, a series of conversations about David Graeber's new book. David, of course, is no longer around, one with uh, Bill Derasewicz. Um, uh, I assume you're in the Graeber camp when it comes to um, reinterpreting, rethinking, rewriting uh, the cultures of antiquity. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm fully in David Graeber's camp. Um, I also haven't read the latest book, which was published posthumously. Um, I don't know if it's really about rewriting a, a history. Um, a lot of the history that I would have based my own work on is actually quite old. Like some of it's even from the turn of last century. A lot of the other uh, rest of it would have been done by people like Paul Cartledge and people in that age group. Um, so the, during the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. So that's actually all research that has been around for quite a while. We don't really need to rewrite too much. Um, perhaps the perception of democracy is something that we tended to get from outside, from people who are outside of democracy or are hostile to democracy. So traditionally, a lot of those um, statements that have been hostile to democracy and were expressed by ancient um, writers, n- I'm not going to say they need to be revised, but they definitely need to be taken in the context in which they were said and which way they were meant. But a so lot of the best defenders, uh, Roslyn, of uh, yeah. democracy. We know, we know that Plato was no great fan of democracy. Socrates was certainly more sympathetic. Aristotle was ambivalent at best. Who, who, who are your models in defense of democracy? Who are your heroes or heroines when it comes to defending democracy? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So those are those are definitely the names that people study uh, in school. I would say for me, it would probably be more the people who actually lived in and made democracy a reality. So one of those people would have been Pericles, who is a very, very well-known politician during uh, a decades of Athenian democracy and was known, was a person who spoke a lot in favor of motions. Um, he was elected a general in Athens many, many times, and he was a very, very influential figure in the democracy there. There's people like Cleisthenes who made reforms that led to democracy. Uh, There's people like Solon who is credited with making reforms that led to democracy, even though he probably didn't have any intention of doing so. Um, There are people who defended democracy. My favorite, and don't quote me on this pronunciation because I don't need to do it too often, is Thrasybulus. He was a man who defended democracy against a takeover by oligarchs known as the 30 tyrants, which happened at about the midpoint of Athenian democracy. So actually those people who aren't, they're not well known as thinkers because they didn't leave a really like a body of work behind them. Um, but they're definitely people who made democracy a reality at the time and who were very, very active in politics. So what can we learn uh, from those less well-known Athenian figures, orators, activists, political figures, in terms of addressing perhaps some of the problems with contemporary democracy, particularly in the United States, where you say there is no real democracy? I think what these people realized in a, 
in a way that is not as realized today is that they didn't take the public for granted. If they wanted to have something done, which they frequently did, they had their own idea of what Athens should be doing as a country. They knew that they would have to convince everyone else in the body politic to go along with that. Maybe not everyone, but at least a majority of people to go along with their idea. So they'd have to go down and they'd have to explain to people, why are we doing this? Why is it in your interest? I'm happy to listen to your objections. I'm happy to have someone speak against me, even if they do so in a very extreme way that perhaps attacks me personally. I'm willing to maybe not get my way. I'm willing to still respect people who maybe have voted against something I really wanted in the past. And they had to do this over and over and over and over and over and over again. So, so you're, uh, we, we had a show recently on the value of, politically, uh, of political uh, oratory. We talked about the German theorist Jürgen Habermas. Are you a Habermasian when it comes to this, this, this idealization of the public space? No, I'm not. I'm much more of a realist. I'm, I'm much more of, a, of an agonistic Democrat, a person who believes in the value of debate and the value of disagreement, actually. You don't think Habermas does? I, he's more of a, well, he's kind of become like a father figure of the deliberative Democrats. Um, you know, they would constantly refer to Habermas and they believe more in what, like deliberation as opposed to debate. So in their ideal view of the world, we should exchange rational thoughts and our reasoning will lead us to an idea of an ideal public good. And, you know, every, nearly everybody will be happy. We should strive to get as close to a consensus as possible. That's like them in a nutshell, kind of. So, no, I, I see the world rather differently. Um, I think it's great to actually have people who disagree and even who continue disagreeing after a decision is made because you need to, you might need to well fall back on their ideas if your idea didn't work out. So it's great to have that. It's actually good to have a full on debate where you really air the issues thoroughly, even though that's often contentious and difficult while it's going on. But doesn't that go without saying though? It's obvious. It's not exactly, I don't think anyone would argue with that. I think it's obvious and and I think I think it's a good thing, but I don't think so. I think a lot of people um, today, especially a lot of academics, they have an idea of a public good that they've defined and they think we need to get everyone to agree to this public good, that there's one common public interest and that we can somehow reason our way to doing that and all getting along and being, you know, just really happy together and everyone will see it was the best decision to be made. And I, first of all, I think that's unrealistic. And secondly, I, I don't think it's always a good idea, as you well, said. Can, who, can you give me some examples of people like that? Um, well, my arch enemies, if you want to call them that, I call them the certitionists. They're people who um, advocate holding citizens' assemblies. And I mean, I don't mean that they're all the same. There is a, a diversity of opinion and a spectrum of opinion among people who are certitionists and who advocate citizens' assemblies. But their ideal state that tends to kind of come through in more or lesser degrees is this idea that we could call together a very small number of citizens. So like 100 citizens or maybe 500 citizens, which compared to total populations in countries today is a very small number of people. And they will deliberate and they will see each other's point of view. And by seeing each other's point of view, they will become less polarized and they will kind of be satisfied with a decision, even a decision they may not have agreed with. Um, and it's not that that's totally wrong. It's just there's no guarantees. It doesn't involve a lot of people. It leaves most, leaves most people out of this process. Um, and there are other issues as well with it. So, yeah, I would see by and large, not without exception, but by and large, that group of people does aim for that, that peaceable, if you want, democracy. Peaceable, controlled, safe democracy. 
I do want to come to a citizen assembly. We'll do that after the break. But I, I, I'm curious still as to your own, it's not clear to me what your position is. Are you a believer in direct democracy? Would you, for example, have been in the Jefferson camp when it came to anti-federalism um, and the debates about whether or not to create a representative American democracy after the revolution? Yes, I probably would have been more of an anti-federalist. Um, that being said, of course, if you want to create a very large country, the founding fathers at the time didn't have a whole lot of options. They didn't have the options we have today to do that. Um, but yes, I'm definitely more of a direct uh, Democrat. Are there models, Rosalind, though? I mean, you mentioned Greece. A lot of people are not comfortable with Greece, given the fact that it was a slave society and women were excluded. Um, are there models where this worked? historically, where you had a, a, a functioning direct democracy? Yeah, I mean, although Athens didn't let women vote and did hold slaves, um, pretty much those are not minor. Those are not minor concerns, are they? Yeah. Okay, all right, cool. Well, first of all, pretty much every other civilization did at the time. So you have to say, is this something that's specifically related to democracy, right? And one way to do that would be to say, do other civilizations that do not practice democracy allow women to participate uh, in politics and don't have slaves? And you'll be very hard pressed to find civilizations of the time that did so. And in fact, for thousands of years after that, you'll have a hard time finding civilizations that did that. So there's not really this correlation that people try to make between democracy or Athenian democracy and slavery are not allowing women to have a prominent place in politics. Um, the other thing is that at the time, to allow just the average guy to have a say in politics was actually a very crazy out there idea. So the whole time the Athenian democracy went on, people around the Athenians didn't say, wow, those Athenians are terrible. Like, did you know they had slaves and don't let women take part? They said, those Athenians are terrible. Did you know they let the average person have a say in voting? I mean, can you imagine if we did that around here? This is insane. And they dealt with that the whole way through. In fact, their own most rich members never got on board with the democracy and they took them over briefly halfway through and killed 5% of the population, including uh, many medics and you know uh, non-citizens. So this is not really this connection between slavery and democracy or slavery and democratic Athens doesn't really exist in any greater extent than it does to any other state at the time. Sure, it would be better if they had said, we're also going to release slaves. They didn't get to that point in their thinking, but they definitely did think more about freedom and freedom being a good thing and freedom being potentially something everyone should have or should want. This did lead them to begin questioning things like that, which is a lot more than you can say for other societies that didn't even countenance this idea that the average person should have that kind of freedom at all, much less anybody else. Do you think there's any coincidence that Jefferson himself, who of course was a slave owner, was also a fetishizer of direct democracy? Is that not coincidental in terms of the, the Greek fetishization of direct democracy too in a slave-based society? No, I really don't think so. I don't think Jefferson was the only person to have slaves or that people who maybe said something positive about direct democracy were the only people to have slaves, right? Or am I wrong about that? Did Maltram, right? I don't know, Rosalind, you're the expert. Anyway, no, yeah, uh, let's, um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's take a break. We are talking with Rosalind Fuller, the author of In Defense of Democracy, a full-throated controversial defense of a certain kind of democracy, a Jeffersonian direct form of democracy. 
Uh, uh, she's the author of uh, In Defense of Democracy, as I said, fascinating new book. Uh, Roslyn, we're going to come back after the break. I want to talk about um, citizen assemblies, uh, your critique of them, because they are quite fashionable at the moment. So I'm intrigued by your critique. And I want to talk about uh, your vision of direct uh, digital democracy uh, in our network 21st century. So we'll be back in about 60 seconds. Hold on, everyone, and we'll be back with Rosalind Fuller, the author of In Defense of Democracy. And this is a most democratic. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Kino. We are back with Rosalind Fuller, the author of In Defense of Democracy. Uh, Rosalind has a, an interesting view on um, citizen assemblies. Uh, I, some of you know that i um, I also host uh, a show called How to Fix Democracy, uh, and we've had a number of shows uh, about uh, about citizen assemblies with the Belgium activist David von Raybrook, for example, uh, John Alexander, British activist, uh, Helena Landemore, French academic who teaches at Yale. Uh, they're all fans of uh, citizen assemblies, ways of innovating or seemingly innovating uh, contemporary democracy, uh, but um, but but my guest today is not a fan. Uh, she wrote a piece in Unheard uh, uh, called uh, called uh, "Don't Be Citizen Assemblies." So, Roslyn, what's wrong with citizen assemblies? They seem to be innovative. They go back to Rome. Uh, sorry, they go back to Greece to take an interesting idea to involve citizens more directly in politics. What's the problem with them? Yeah, well, first of all, they don't really go back to Greece because you won't find this kind of thing, at least not in Greek democracy. Um, well, there was um, there, there was uh, involvement by lottery. That was a Greek uh, phenomenon, wasn't it? 
Yes, yes. And, it was and that's very... what citizen assemblies are. They are involvement by lottery in, in where you're talking to me from in Ireland. Uh, uh, citizen, uh, the lottery is taken and a small group of people are, are, are thrust into politics to, to, to think about and discuss controversial issues like abortion. Okay, sure, but that's not what happened in ancient Greece. Um, in ancient Greece, they used lotteries for completely different re- ways. You can't be like, oh, lottery, lottery, that's the same, right? Um, in in ancient Greece, they did use lotteries to select people to be officials, but officials were very different back then. They were pretty much controlled by the assembly where anyone could attend, and they had to act only in the interests of the assembly. As the assembly instructed them, they had very little decision-making power. There are also a lot of them in comparison to the population of Athens. The other thing they did is there was a council, um, which was composed of 500 people. However, one quarter of all Athenians had to be on that council at some point in their lives just to make up those kinds of numbers, because we are talking a much smaller society. Right. They also didn't have the say, you know, the, the vote on the law happened in assembly. So this idea that this council is the same as what's happening with citizens assemblies today is like not quite on. It's the citizens assemblies today offer, um, they involve much, much smaller numbers of people, like minuscule numbers of people. Right. Well, I, I, I accept that. But but there's a great deal of enthusiasm in certain quarters for citizen assemblies. Let's take the Irish model of, of asking a small group of people. In fact, I made a film for How to Fix Democracy and we went to Ireland and interviewed some of the people who are actually on the assemblies. Um, it, it seems to be a model that some people like. What's the problem with it? Yeah, I mean, I know the people you interviewed because Ireland's such a small place, right? Um, what is the problem? Who are they? Oh, like Louise Caldwell, right? You interviewed her, right? I saw yeah. that on Yeah, right. Okay. So um, what is the problem with them? It's not so much that there's, it's maybe a problem of what you're trying to do with them. There's only two really things you can do with a citizen's assembly. The first one is you can say, fine, it's advisory. So um, the assembly itself has no power. It just, you know, is kind of there to tell politicians what people think, right? That's one one way you can do it. The other way is to legislate directly and to say these assemblies should make law for the entire country, basically, right? Um, They both have issues. If you allow this citizens assembly to legislate and for its decisions to be binding well now you've made decisions with a very 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 tiny number of people who have no legitimacy who often you know make decisions that the rest of the country isn't okay with right they make a big deal about the abortion referendum we had even though most people were already in favor of legalizing abortion in ireland but they don't usually mention the other referendum they had which was about the age at which you can be president, which is citizens, uh, actually the Constitutional Convention, I think, which preceded the Citizens Assembly did, but which bombed at the polls, right? I mean, I voted for it, but obviously three quarters of Irish people voted against it. So the idea that this is going to line up with popular opinion isn't necessarily the case because too small to be statistically representative and people in groups get off on things that, you know, it might be great, it might be wonderful, but you're not taking the rest of the country with you, right? Um, So that's one issue. Like if you think about legislating, it's just prone to a whole lot of issues like this. Um, Then if it's advisory, well, the government can kind of cherry pick the bits they want, obviously, right? Governments already have focus Are you saying they did that with abortion in Ireland? Oh, yeah. I mean, we had the Constitutional Convention. I think it had 42 referen- uh, forty-two recommendations. Sorry. Um, some of those recommendations, some of the most interesting ones were ones they took on themselves, which dealt with like um, housing rights and economic rights, which are really big issues here in Ireland. Like housing is a really, really big issue here um, nationally. Um, nothing has come out of these. Nothing has come out of 
a lot of these recommendations. So of course, I mean, why wouldn't it? And the same thing happened in, in France, you know, uh, Emmanuel Macron was supposed to say, we're going to, you know, we're going to take every recommendation without a filter uh, to the parliament. I'm not saying I approve of that because of what I previously said. But of course, he'd like torpedoed, they made a resolution that they should uh, charge 4% corporation tax or something in order to raise money uh, to fund their climate change initiatives that they proposed. And that was torpedoed from the beginning, unsurprisingly. So, so Rosalind, are there two models here? Your your critique of citizen assemblies is they're perhaps too elitist or too restricted. I mean, given the logistics of contemporary countries, I'm, I'm not sure how you get around that. Are you in favor of simply pure direct democracies? One fear of that is that you have the coming to power of networks like uh, the Yellow Jackets um, in France or um, or new populist authoritarian leaders like Viktor Orban in in um, in Hungary or even uh, Donald Trump in the United States. You're not fearful of these direct democracies? Well, there's nothing direct democratic about anything Trump did. He's elected in a representative system. So actually, if anything, uh, Trump lost the popular vote when he got elected. So only because the United States has an electoral college, which was originally put in place, to prevent, like, to refine the will of the average vote, did they actually end up with Trump being president for four years? So it's kind of interesting that, like, actually that attempt at elitism went astray in that case, if you want, not only in terms of elitism, but also in terms of then the presidential choice not reflecting the popular will. Um, Direct democracy isn't about electing leaders. It's about deciding on issues. And that's really the key difference. Because when you vote for a leader, it it brings in all kinds of issues. You have to trust them because obviously they can do what they want once they're in power. Um, and no one really knows why exactly people voted for the people they do because they're kind of voting on an entire package instead of on... So how would it work? Let's use the example of abortion in Ireland. I take your point that a small amount of people were, were for one reason or other, brought on and it wasn't particularly representative. How could direct democracy work when it comes to the discussion of the abortion issue in Ireland today? Yeah, that's just it. We did have a referendum. <laughs> we have so, you're, so you're in favour. So so it's really, we so did, you're a proponent of referendum, the Brexit style referendum. You think that's the best way to conduct pure democracy? Yeah, I think that like, I think we could improve on this, on this, right? Okay, so but I just like to point out that we did, like in, in Ireland, abortion was forbidden by the constitution. The only way we can change the constitution is to have a referendum. We did have, we had a referendum to put that thing into the constitution back in 1983. We had a couple of referendums in the meantime that were about abortion and issues related to abortion. And then we had the one you're referring to, which was 2018, I think, where we voted to remove the provision that we put in by referendum in 1983. So, the abortion thing in Ireland has been very, very heavily done by a referendum, actually, because of the original kind of. Original so, you're, so you're really so your politics is that of the referendum. You believe that democratic systems should work on models of referendum, that major issues should be decided directly by the people. Is that your, your argument? I would agree with the last bit. Major issues should be decided by the people. Um, it's not necessarily quite as simple as just having referendums, um, because probably which 
I think most people are probably envisioning is having referendums under a representative system, which means... Like, Do you, you believe our, in that? Should there be referendums under a representative system? I think it's. A, I think they're generally a good idea. Um, I think they can be improved on, though, because there are issues like, for example, um, if a government can choose when to have a referendum, then obviously they can kind of time it the way they want and they can, you know, run so it what over you make, Right. So what do you make of Brexit, say, where some people would argue that Brexit actually the referendum on Brexit um, was um, was a, a, a profoundly unjust way of determining something incredibly complicated. I mean, the argument of, say, the Citizen Assembly community would be that Brexit is very, very complicated. It requires a degree of expertise in understanding economic policy. So it might have been best to deal with it in terms of a citizen assembly, a combination of citizens by lottery and experts, and then taken back to the people. Is that not a good way of doing it? Well, there's a couple of things there. Um, Interestingly enough, Brexit was pretty similar to the abortion thing in that they also ratified becoming members of the EU like back in the 70s through referendum as well. They did have a referendum to ratify that. It's like almost the last referendum they had. I think maybe they had one in between. Um, But in between, of course, this was dealt with by experts, right? Experts did deal with all of the EU negotiations. Experts did deal with all of the fights that and the trade wars that Britain had with other members of the European Union, which were also many. Um, experts did deal with all of the regulation that came into place via the EU. So actually, they did have 40 years of things run, being run by experts. Obviously, people weren't very happy with that. Um, that unhappiness sort of dragged on, on and off for years and years and years and years and years before David Cameron finally decided to hold this referendum, which he believed he was going to win, kind of gets back to what I said in the beginning of taking people for granted. He believed he was going to win. The Remain side believed they were going to win. They didn't really make a very strong case or a very compelling case for themselves. They could have, but they didn't. They just kept telling people that on average, Britain would be better off. Right. But on average, it doesn't mean you. And, and I think people are smart enough to know that it doesn't mean me. It doesn't mean I'm going to be better. You're not explaining to me why I should do this. Um, and I think that's to some extent why they lost. I also think there's like reasons that Britain is quite different than the rest of Europe in a lot of ways. Um, and they actually kind of have different mindsets in a lot of ways. So I think that played into it as well, to be honest. One of the great issues, Rosin, again, I'm sure I don't need to tell you this, is global warming, the future of the environment. We had um, Avi Chomsky. We've had a lot of discussion on this on the show. Avi Chomsky on why climate justice is just as important as science and talking about political action. In your view, um, when it comes to the environment, would direct democracy work? I mean, is it, some people might argue it's too important to be left to Facebook groups or Twitter when it's so easy to manipulate the information. Surely we can rely on scientists, climate experts to determine how to um, fix global warming. Okay, there's a whole bunch of things in there. Um, first of all, like direct democracy isn't Facebook and Twitter. You know, I didn't vote in the in the last abortion referendum on Facebook or Twitter. Like I went in and cast my vote as a person as everybody else does. Um, the second thing is like fixing, fixing these issues. Well, who's going to implement your decisions? I mean, you can make whatever rule you want. People have to follow it. So experts can decide what they like. But if people don't understand why they've just decided that and they aren't convinced of the reasoning behind it, they aren't going to do what you want them to do. 
So you probably need to go back to the drawing board and get them on tape on the table. I think I think a big problem, a big mistake of the climate change, if you want, movement is that they've decided that everyone has to believe that, um, first of all, climate change is man-made and climate change is going to be terrible. It's going to kill like hundreds of millions or billions of people, right? There has to be this very, very disastrous view of climate change in order to do anything about it. But there doesn't have to be. You could just say, you know, you could you could be for pro-climate measures for a whole lot of different reasons. I mean, pollution isn't good for you under any circumstances. You're breathing it in. It's not great for you. Um, trying to always find energy around the world has led to a whole lot of wars and people dying. It's actually not a very good idea either. It's actually really, really good for countries to produce their own energy. They would be more energy secure. You know, eating less meat is better for you. Like, I mean, that that is proven, you know, maybe not zero meat at all, but definitely less than most people in America eat, for example. So there are actually a lot of different reasons people can behave in quite climate-friendly ways. And people actually have. Before like this kind of recent push came, people were recycling. They weren't recycling when I was a kid. Um, we did deal with the hole in the ozone layer, which was another big issue when I was a kid. So people can do things without necessarily having to follow your reasoning every step of the way. And I think by not being more diverse in the group of people where they're appealing to, and not appealing to people's self-interest a little bit more as well, they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot, to be honest. I'm not clear what you're saying, actually. Are you suggesting that um, in terms of addressing climate change, that scientists don't matter? What about no, COVID? I never said anything like that. I actually, I actually referred to a lot of scientific things. I referred to, um, you know, eating less what about, Let's use the, the COVID example, then. Should we have... That I never said scientists didn't matter, and I actually referred to a number of scientific things. Well, let's use the COVID example. Um, I mean, forty percent—I don't know what the numbers are. I think around somewhere between thirty and forty percent of Americans don't believe that you should have the vaccine for one reason or other. Many of them misunderstanding the science. So, if you had direct democracy in terms of whether or not there should be mandatory COVID vaccinations, the outcome could be really problematic don't we need experts technocrats scientists to determine policy when it comes to these directly critical issues for the future of society and the world okay well we do have scientists involved a lot in policy i mean scientists made those vaccines that we're taking so i don't I don't think we have a situation where scientists aren't involved in crafting these policies, but you're saying, would it be bad to, to, to make this decision by direct democracy? Well, if only 40% of people believe that, then actually it would be great to make it by direct democracy because 60% of people would overrule 40% of people actually. But even assuming that's not so, even if you make a mandate, how do you force those X percentage of people, however many it is. Well, you could do it by law. I mean, that's another issue. But I mean, there no, are you could, have, you could no, impose no, a law and point. make this it illegal not to no. take a vaccine. This is my point. It's not another issue. Because if you have a very large majority of people who isn't willing to take a vaccine, then it actually isn't just a kind of theoretical issue because you actually have to implement it. And this was the point I was making about climate change as well. You have to implement it. Someone has to get a shot in their arms somehow, you know, just saying there should be a vaccine mandate doesn't give them the shot. So I'm talking to Rosalind uh, Fuller, the author of In Defense of Democracy. Uh, Rosalind, finally, I want to talk about um, digital democracy. Um, uh, the Taiwanese model gets a lot of press. Here we have a piece from The Economist. 
Um, Audrey Tang is the architect of um, the digital reforms in, in, in Taiwan. Uh, Estonia, e-Estonia is another model. Can the kind of direct democracy that you idealize, can it be done technologically through digital networks? Is that really the future of democracy? I don't think I idealize any kind of democracy. Um, and I have a pretty realistic and not necessarily very naive view of what a democracy would be like. I think I probably wouldn't get my way a lot in a democracy. Um, is this a good model of democracy? Yes. Could we do things online? Sure we could. Um, can we, to get back to your earlier questions about referendums, can we improve how direct democracy is done by facilitating more debate between citizens in an environment that isn't Twitter or Facebook? Yes, we can do all of those things. Well, what about the Taiwanese or Estonian models? Are they innovative? Are you uh, a supporter of what's happening in countries like Taiwan and Estonia? Yeah, I would broadly say yes. Um, and I would say we can even do more than that. Um, in Taiwan, they kind of did a they did a sort of participation where they asked people, the one that gets all the attention is they asked people how Uber drivers should be regulated. Um, and they did a kind of thing using a software called Polis, which sort of divides people into groups based on their views. And then those people try to convince each other to come over to the other side. And through that, you kind of work towards a consensus of what they would like to see on regulation, in this case, Uber drivers. Um, in Estonia, they do e-voting, which is just voting. It's voting in elections, except it's online. Um, it's not mandatory. You can choose to do that. You can choose to vote online, but they've been doing it for quite a few years now. I'd say like at least maybe 15 at this point. Um, they also do other things. So there's also a petition model that they use in Estonia where people can submit uh, petition items and other people can vote on that. And then if it becomes popular enough, it's submitted to the parliament and the parliament debates on this matter. So it actually works pretty well. They actually have quite a number of successes doing things that way. Are you uh, excited about Web3 and the peer-to-peer the -peer technologies that might enable direct democracy in the future, global direct democracy? There are some proponents of that. Although Jack Dorsey recently this week came out and said that when you actually look at these things critically, you're still going to have narrow elites controlling it. Yeah, I don't think, um, I probably don't think we'd probably have global direct democracy too soon because, especially because of language barriers um, and differences between countries. So, I mean, I, I do think that's incredibly ambitious. Um, it's, or, it's already quite ambitious to have direct democracy in a country, um, let alone globally. Um, right now, we already have, even now, a lot of structures that would allow direct democracy. There's a lot of software that allows people to communicate on a peer-to-peer -peer basis. You know, there's no NGOs involved. There's no corporations involved. There's no non-natural people involved, mm. right? Can you give me an um, example of that, that for people who are interested in this that they can look at? Yeah, okay. Well, we mentioned the one Polis, uh, which was used in Taiwan. Um, there's another one called Othello, which is a Canadian software, which is really good, has a really broad all-round functionality. Um, there's Manabals, which is another um, petition software in uh, Latvia, but it's really bottom-up kind of in how it's constructed. So that's very good as well. Um, we have also a lot of participatory budgeting softwares. So um, Delib, for example, which is a British kind, uh, kind of organization, runs a really good participatory budgeting software. So, And that allows people, participatory budgeting allows people to make decisions about their local budget. It could be a bigger budget. It's usually a local budget um, online or offline by themselves. So they get to allocate a certain part of the budget directly. Great stuff from Rosalind Fuller, the author of In Defense of Democracy, a full-throated 
critique in some ways of representative democracy, a call to return to the purity of uh, democracy in ancient Greece. Rosalind, congratulations on the book. Oh, in addition to your new book, uh, In Defense of Democracy, what else should people be reading in these dark days of COVID and the reappearance of authoritarian politics in Central Europe in late December 2021? Yeah, um, one really good book by an Irishman is Peter Mayer, Ruling the Void. Uh, And this is about the development of European democracy and also the ways in which a lot of decisions have been kind of taken out of the democratic sphere, you know, for example, having independent central banks. So it's a very, very interesting read. Um, Josiah Ober and Brooke Manville wrote a book called Company of Citizens, which is, it's about, they're both historians, it's about ancient Athens, but it's kind of updated, Um, it's really, it's a really easy read, it's not stuffy or anything like that. then Anand Giridharadis, Winner Takes All, is a really good uh, analysis of NGOs and kind of oligarchic charity in the modern age. A really, really, really good book. Um, and finally, kind of an older book, but one that's quite good, um, is Globalization and Its Discontents by Joseph Stiglitz. Um, he used to work at the World Bank uh, in a very high position. And this is about uh, some of the ways that global democracy doesn't work the way it should. I think it's a really good book, too, and really easy to read as well. Well, good suggestions from Rosalind Fuller. I hope this is an example of how people with different opinions can talk in a civil way to one another, an example of direct democracy. Rosalind, happy new year. You'll have to come back on the show and talk more democratic politics in a democratic manner. Keep well, and we'll talk again in the not-too-distant future. Thanks again. Thank you, and happy new year to you too. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms. All major podcast platforms carry the Keenon show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, Uh, or on LitHub's Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keenon show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, Uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows, you might email me at a.keen at me.com, or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects, which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keenon. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community, and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not-too-distant future.